Try as you may, you just can't get away from mathematics. And what a way to start the Sunday. Tom Lehrer there with That's Mathematics. And that's what we're all about today on Fuzzy Logic. We're getting into the side of science known as mathematics. And we're going to be talking not just numbers, but patterns and errors and animals too, I think. A whole lot of different stuff going on today. And uh, joining me in the studio, um, I'm not going to claim to be a maths expert at all, so I brought some along with me instead. Um, joining me in the studio... Uh, That's accolade indeed, <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if I quite live up to such expectations. I'm intimidated, yeah. <laughs> well, we'll see how you go, gents. It's a, it's a very masculine studio today. The testosterone's in the air, um, because joining me is Jamos. Good morning, Jamos. Well, hello. <laughs> and uh, Dennis. Good morning. Good morning. There <laughs> and um, it's good to have both of you in the studio with us. And look, I thought I'd stuff. We are doing math. So let's just start off with the the simplest question I could think of. What's your favourite number? Oh, it'd be my wife's phone number. Your wife? Oh, oh, very good. Yeah. No, she just gets me out of trouble all the time. It's like, well, I can't be bothered riding the bike. It's like, Nicole, someone save me. <laughs> How about you, Dennis? My favourite's zero. I liked it because it... Always made things much simpler or much harder. It was quite an extreme mm. number. Well, they had to invent zero, didn't they? Yeah. Right before that, the essence uh, of well, nothing. Then, then you're getting into a whole <laughs> world of... Uh, so, if they had to invent zero, well, did they have to invent one? And, and who were they? And, who are they? And, and what is the nature of number? And then you... Well, that's a whole, that's a whole early, early thing for a Sunday morning. All right, well let's 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 let people wake up first. Yeah, I, think so. <laughs> I, I should introduce myself too. My name's Broderick. It's a pleasure to be back with you on a Sunday. And uh, my favourite number is uh, three hundred and forty-three. Um, oh, why is that, Brod? Because that was the number of jelly beans in the jar in my primary school jelly bean jar guessing competition that helped me win all three hundred and forty-three jelly beans. Wow, so I was quite happy with that one. Yeah, I think you should be. All right. Well, look, before we get into the maths, maths side of things, we might look at some other science that's been happening. Today is, of course, the uh, 20... I've completely forgotten what the date. 25th? 23rd. 24th. 24th. Ah, so... 25th. 25th of March. There we go. There we go. It's a Christmas in March. (laughs) I should have actually written that on the bit of paper that tells me everything that happened on this day in previous years, but I assure you it is the 25th of March. Um, On this day in 1655, Christian Huygens uh, discovered Titan, which is, of course, Saturn's largest satellite uh, and the easiest to observe. Uh, He determined its period of revolution, uh, how long it takes to go round, but it wasn't named until almost two centuries later when Sir John Herschel, discoverer of Uranus, assigned names to the seven moons of Saturn that were known at the time. Uh, Saturn's largest moon was named simply Titan, since the word means one that is great in size, importance or achievement. Maybe I should have said we have titans of maths with us this morning. (laughs) (laughs) That would have been even more intimidating. (laughs) Terence Towers turning up from somewhere. (laughs) (laughs) Um, What else has happened on this day? In 1843, the Thames Tunnel in London uh, was open for pedestrians between Rotherhith and Wapping. Uh, (laughs) What? Wapping. Okay. That's That's what the kids are doing nowadays. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, this was the world's first tunnel under a navigable river. Um, So um, work started on that in 1825. So 18 years they persevered dealing with floods, human disasters and delays. Uh, And eventually (laughs) they never added the planned ramps for use by carts and freight traffic due to the cost um, uh, but eventually a railway line through the tunnel opened in uh, 1869 and it remains in use as the oldest part of the London Underground. There, there you go. go. Well, you've got to remember, I mean, they dug that with shovels and pickaxes. So no wonder it took 12 years. Yeah, yeah, it's a long time to, yeah, to work yeah, on it. Yeah. Um, what else happened? In 1903, Times newspaper reported that French physicist Pierre Curie, I, I like this, assisted by Marie Curie, <laughs> assist, yeah, I think she did a bit more than assist, um, communicated to the Academy of Sciences that the recently discovered radium possesses the extraordinary property of continuously emitting heat without combustion, without chemical change of any kind, and without change to its molecular structure, which remains spectroscopically identical after many months of continuous emission of heat, such that pure radium salt would melt more than its own weight of ice every hour. 
A small tube containing radium, if kept in contact with skin for some hours, produces an open sore by destroying the epidermis and the true skin beneath, and cause the death of living things whose nerve centres do not lie deep enough to be shielded from their influence. I wonder why that was <laughs> they like radium. I wonder if there's a clue. <laughs> Somehow I think the name and... Yeah, I... Yeah. I, I mm. You'd think something was up, certainly. Something just remained hot permanently. Yeah. Um, I think they eventually worked it out as <laughs> bits started dropping off and that sort of thing. Um, so that's that. In 19, only 1903, though, amazingly. Yeah. Radioactivity discovered. So, oh, well, not well, necessarily discovered there, but yeah. yeah. Witness. And uh, look, to finish off, just a couple of quick ones. In 1925... On this day, the first public demonstration of John Logie Baird's television sets down at Selfridge Department Store in Oxford Street, London. Do they have So You Think You Can Charleston? That's right, that's right. And uh, um, Master Housewife, I think, was the other one on there. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Who can cook the roast the best before Father gets home. Uh, With their new radium ovens, it just (laughs) (laughs) just happens automatically. That's right. And look, tying into that, on this day in 1954, RCA announced the production of colour television sets. There we go. Yeah. What? No. Colour. Colour in 1954. Had they invented colour by then? (laughs) What were they using it for? I think so. Spoiled. Well, I think they did, because in 1903 they were glowing green, weren't they, with the radiation? (laughs) Yes, I think they were. I think they were. Um, And finally, this day in 1992, British scientists found a new largest perfect number, uh, which is... Um, uh, so perfect numbers, yes. Uh, like uh, please, please uh, define like twenty-eight. This. If you get yeah. all the factors, uh, all the numbers that divide into it nice and evenly, and then add them up, you get that number again. So a, right. a nice easy example is six. You get one, two, three, and add those together, you, you get, get six. six. So right. six is a perfect number. Right. Well, the new largest perfect good. number yeah. they've got is uh, a bit bigger than six. Yeah, yeah. It's um. Now, I'm not sure whether I'm reading this correctly. 2,756,839 to the power of negative 1 times 2,756,839. Now, that doesn't uh, seem I'll, I'll just right. work that up for you. Yeah, uh, yeah. Yeah, that's fine. Yeah, I'm, I'm <laughs> have to clarify that number. And, um, yeah, see, see, see if we can find those factors that add up to make it a perfect number. Sure, and then we'll just uh, we'll list them. Uh, we'll, that's right. We'll, 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 we'll set that as a... the rest of the show. It'd be awesome. Yeah. We'll set that as a challenge for the listeners. If you can do that before the end of the show, <laughs> yeah, we'll just pay call your in. subscription for you. That's right. Call into the studio, 6247-4400, and um, we'd love to hear your answer to that one. <laughs> All right, that's enough of that. Look, let's get to some more recent science um, and stuff that's been happening this week. And, Jamos, you've got a couple of things that's been going on this week in science. Yeah, absolutely. I was just uh, Before we step into the hallowed world of maths, I thought we might just slum it a bit. <laughs> slum it a bit with some of this science stuff. Um, and one of the things that really grabbed my attention uh, was uh, scientists over at uh, USC and in Berkeley have um, discovered something brand new, all about hydrogen bombs and, and uh, proton transfer. Uh, just a bit of background in case you don't know. Hydrogen atoms are shared between uh, two molecules, forming a so-called hydrogen bond. And this bond determines structures and properties of everything from liquid water to the DNA double helix and, and the shape of proteins. And hydrogen bonds also serve as pathways for which protons may travel from one molecule to another, like a road between two houses. So what happens if there's no road? And to find out, the scientists at USC and at Berkeley created a system in which two molecules were stacked on top of each other without hydrogen bonds between them. Then they ionized one of the molecules to coax a proton to move from one place to another. And discovered when there's no straight road between the two houses, the houses or molecules can rearrange themselves so that the front doors are right next to each other. And that way the proton can transfer from one to the other with no hydrogen bond and with really little energy. Then the molecules return to their original positions. So basically the molecule just slips around and goes, ha ha, have that, and then slips back. And armed with the new knowledge, 
that scientists may be able to better understand chemical reactions involving catalysts, how biomass can be used as a renewable fuel source, and how melanin protects our bodies from the sun rays and to damage the, you know, prevent damage from DNA. So there's a whole new way of looking at how reactions happen. And it's been discovered this week. Talk wow. about amazing. I bet you yeah. they used some maths to prove it. <laughs> I'm sure they would have. I, just, yeah. I don't know if I like molecules being able to remember the way they used to be. Where, where, wow. Oh, that's thermodynamics <laughs> for you. No, are, they, uh, are they actually remembering? Or are they going, well, if I invest some energy here, I'll go to that, and then I'll be able to change back. And uh, Brilliant. Did you see, I think it was MIT, I don't know, this week, last week, pretty recently, they discovered where memories are actually stored in the neurons. They got a big thing on their website. It was um, terrifying. Yes, I, I did see I did see that. And maybe that's why uh, in X-Men, uh, <laughs> when uh, Wolverine gets shot in the head by an adamantium bullet, uh, his brain can grow back, but the memories don't. Yeah, it's a problem. Yeah. Yeah. Poor Wolverine. I mean, that's, that's almost getting to eternal sunshine of the spotless mind type <laughs> stuff. Actually yeah. being able to identify... Where those mirrors? That would be amazing. Look at the difference in the highbrow here. I'm talking about X-ray. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay. You yeah. It would be fun. No, but I think they're both valid because I mean they're doing the same thing in, in Eternal Sunshine. They're just zapping them in X-Men. They just shoot out the the, the memories. Yeah. 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 There you go, listeners. Um, <laughs> give us a call. If what would you do if you knew you could just erase the memories of it afterwards? The money's no object. Just no. I don't really want to know. I'll look over no. on this again. <laughs> I, I think it would only work if I could erase everyone else's memories too. <laughs> <laughs> and then, you know, if you did erase your memory for it, well, clearly you were embarrassed enough to need to erase that memory. Well, then would you have remembered that you did you it, in which case you'd yeah. go and do it again? And, uh, oh, dear. Depends how much you're making out of this deal. <laughs> yeah, that's right. You can encourage people. Yeah. Uh, time to kill that conversation. <laughs> um, and whilst we're talking about things that die, uh, you might have heard, uh, not such happy news, that... Uh, um, I think it was this week, last week. Uh, it was recently, anyway. Mm. That uh, some four dino, uh, four rhinos. Dinos. <laughs> <laughs> the, the rhinos died at Dubbo, not the dinos ride at Dubbo. <laughs> <laughs> that would be a very different headline. Though. That's right. <laughs> Do you remember Dino Riders? That was great. <sighs> Dinosaurs, lasers. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I'm dying at Dubbo. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Somber sad. Yeah, that's Aww. right. But it's not the only reason that, uh, that rhinosaurus <laughs> have made it into, into the news uh, recently, at least if you're following science news. And southern white rhino populations, which were once thriving in zoos, uh, have been showing severely reduced re- reproductive rates among captive-born populations. And uh, San Diego Zoo global researchers have a possible lead into why. It's the phytoestrogens in their diets that may be contributing to the reproductive failure in females. After elephants, the southern white rhinoceros is the world's second largest land animal. And it's also uh, one of the ones that's a near-threatened species. Wild populations are facing poaching and sport hunting, but captive populations of this animal are declining due to reproductive problems in the females. And these include is uh, a great bunch of uh, a great bunch of very medical things to ease you into your Sunday morning or well, Sunday afternoon. I suppose it will be now. Uh, let me see. What, what can you get if you're a rhinoceros eating a captive diet? You can get uh, cystic endometrial hyperplasia, cervical, ovarian, and uterine cancers, and ovarian cysts. So it's no wonder they're actually having troubles trying to conceive little baby rhinos. The San Diego Zoo researchers believe that the diets of the captive population offers much concern, specifically the phytoestrogens, such as isoflavonoids found in alfalfa and soy that they eat, activate the estrogen receptors much more than the black rhinoceros, another captive population that receives a very similar diet, but has got a much better reproductive success. Hmm. And there we go. So that's basically the rhino, the the uh, white rhino, is in quite a bit of trouble because those are in the wild are getting shot and poached, and those in captivity aren't able to breed as well as they used to be. So, how much longer do we have rhinos for? Mm. Who knows? So that, no, not, uh, no, I don't. No, um, broad, yeah. do you no, 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 I'm not. Sure. I'm, I was a half trying to make a joke about nose and rhinos. Yeah. And oh. Yeah. No. Yeah. <laughs> Music. Yeah. 
I've always wondered about nose surgery, calling it rhinoplasty. I mean, if someone's oh, got a big why. nose, do you think they know already? They don't need to be called a rhino as well on top of it. Anyway, I think <laughs> <laughs> let's just stop this nonsense and have some music. To get us in the maths mood, um, here's a cover by Embrace 3 is a magic number. No excuse for forgetting your three times tables now. That was three is a magic number by Embrace. You're listening to Fuzzy Logic on 98.3 FM, 2XX Community Radio. The time is 11.49 and uh, today... We're having a few moments of maths. Broderick here with you and Jamos and Dennis are joining me in the studio to talk about maths. And uh, to kick us off today, now last week, if you tuned in, we were talking about uh, the underwater world and what's going on there. And uh, that marine science forum is actually happening right now down in Eden. Um, so I hope they're having a great time down there. But we're going to relate a bit of maths to the underwater world, aren't we, Jamos? Yeah, we are. But uh, actually, I realised we've already we've already started talking maths already. I and mean, we did on the last thing about the rhinos, talking about why they can't multiply. Oh, oh God! Right. <laughs> well, we set the bar there. It's easy to work the show up. So you know. All right. So uh, maths and underwater. What are you going to do? Uh, uh, sometimes the fastest path between point A and point B is not a straight line. For example, if you're underwater and contending with strong and shifting currents, that's a pretty good reason why a straight line might not be the quickest path. But by figuring out the best route in such settings is a hugely difficult, complex problem. Especially if you're trying to do it not for just one underwater vehicle, but for a swarm of them moving all at once towards separate destinations. But that's, that's just what a team of engineers at MIT have just figured out how to do. The team developed a mathematical procedure that can optimise path planning for automated underwater vehicles, which are often used for mapping and oceanographic research for military reconnaissance and for harbour protection, or for deep-sea oil well maintenance and emergency responses and a whole bunch of different things. Right. So it's kind of like a Google Maps for underwater, but they're, they're actually taking into account, you know, I mean, currents and stuff like, like what the traffic would be if Google Maps took into account proper traffic and jams and that sort yeah, of thing. Yeah, that's, that's, they're that's doing that for underwater. But, uh, the, the easy thing, well, the relatively easy thing for Google Maps is it's 2D. Right. And oh. obviously, when you go into the ocean, you've got, you got the whole depth, you've got the different temperatures uh, and the different densities of water and then the currents flow differently and there's a whole world of things. And you've got really, really complex, rugged coastlines. Yeah. And with Google Maps, roads, you can knock them down to straight lines nice and easily <laughs> and, and do the complex... So it's actually a really, really intricate thing that they've done, and it's absolutely amazing. Yeah. Their, their bits of maths works out even in regions with complex shorelines and strong shifting currents and provide paths optimized either for the shortest travel time or for the minimum use of energy to maximise the collection of data that is considered most important. Yeah. So it's one thing uh, to be able to go from A to B as quickly as possible, but if you go there as quickly as possible, that's less time you're in the water, less time in the water means there's less likely, there's less time for you to record the data, and if you're in there to record data, that's what you need to do. Yeah. But okay. by the same measure, if you're trying to go a long way, then you need to make sure you use your, your energy resources as efficiently as possible. So There's actually an amazing thing that these guys have done. And the team simulations have successfully tested this new algorithm in models in very complex environments, including basically the Philippines with thousands of islands and convoluted shorelines and shallows and multiple shifting currents and sharks that come in and attack things and, and taking advantage of uh, the free ride offered by these currents. What do you reckon happens? You know, you put a, you put a bunch of ducks in a river or, you know... That. Uh, what do you reckon is going to happen if they're going to get from A to B? Do they get head off in a straight line? The ducks. Well, what? well yeah, okay, no. Uh, the the <laughs> underwater vehicles. You, you put them in. They're going to head off in a straight line, and often they really, really don't. Yeah. They can even start heading backwards to start with. 
Because if they can map around the area and see that if you get back into this bit over here, then you can catch the current, which will take you all the way down there, uh, and then overshoot and then come back, because it's much more efficient. Yeah. And obviously, this, is, this takes in a lot, a lot of modelling. So not only do you have to have good models of where the currents are and what's going on for each time, then you've got to do real-time analysis for it. And that's been one of the big problems... Um, with previous models, they were really, really clunky, and uh, either they were they were too simplistic that they didn't actually work, or they were too intricate that you couldn't actually model them. You needed supercomputers to model, <laughs> and so they couldn't actually work real time. So these guys have actually integrated a whole bunch of different components and optimized it so that it can actually run very, very smoothly on very, very small computers. Wow. Yeah. Uh, so... In addition to finding paths that are the quickest or most efficient, the system allows swarms of data collection vehicles to collect the most useful data in the fastest time. And the algorithm allows for real-time control and adjustments, such as to track a plume of pollution to its source or to determine how it's spreading. The system can also incorporate obstacle avoidance functions to help protect the vehicles. So, you know, like, there's a great big reef in the way. Don't sail straight into it. (laughs) There's a whale. Try and avoid that one. And one of the, the most <laughs> intricate and uh, like amazing, like, now that you've got this information, what would you do with it? All right, so let's say we've got this model, mm. which allows you to um, put lots of little robots in the ocean and scootle around and collect data. What would you do with that? I'd study cuttlefish. I don't trust them. They're planning something. They've been out for too long. I'd just follow them. Yeah. Learn their secret. I mean, I'd just send, send stuff out there because we know so little about what's going on in the ocean. Just just get all the robots in there and, and collecting data. Yeah, well, uh, absolutely. And that's, yeah. that's a really obvious thing. Uh, but here's a little trick. <laughs> yeah. A little cute version of it. Well, uh, the next step that they're contemplating is how can you use that exact same system to put in miniature medical robots oh. to navigate around your blood supply because oh, it's got exactly the same things you've got these great big currents you've got these obstacles you yeah. have to avoid you have to time your bit between the valves it's there yeah that would be pretty awesome yeah. how about stuff like air travel and that sort of thing could we increase the efficiency of our air travel by oh we, we already do we do okay well, we do uh we've we've been uh, using the jet streams for forever Basically. Yeah. Uh, really, really nice, but not terribly friendly example of that was uh, the Japanese in World War Two. Oh, okay. Uh, they um, they were bombing America. Yeah. And the way they were bombing America was they were sending up basically hot air balloons with uh, bombs on them, and they would go straight up, hit the air, the jet stream, and whistle straight across the Pacific. Wow. And they had timers on them, and then they just dropped the bombs. So just completely. Uh, possibly the first uh, uh, was it unmanned aerial yeah. uh, Wow. Yeah. So, so we've been using that for a while because we know more about yeah, what's and, and our modelling for it is getting better and better. Mm. And aeroplanes always, yeah. always use uh, the jet streams yeah. and the air currents up there to help them. I suppose it's a bit simpler too. There's no borders as such in the air and um, yeah, no uh, obstacles. Yeah, hopefully not. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and the other thing is typically you've got a pilot and they can make those yeah. adjustments. Okay. Uh, so these are talking about unmanned yeah. little robotic subs that yeah. can just go do it for you. Crazy. Yeah. yeah. Brilliant. <laughs> yeah, that'd be interesting to see what sort of data we can get from that and yeah. um, see what's down there. Oh, isn't James Cameron about to launch? I'd, I'd heard this that actually, and um, look, I'm, I'm going to qualify this and say this is... Uh, not confirmed, but <laughs> internet truth. Yeah, yeah, internet truth. But that he was developing stuff because he wants to do sort of a, a new Avatar style three D awesome amazing. It's not Titanic film. two. No, I don't think it's Titanic Ghost two. Ship. I, I think it's actually like deep oceans. But the the research that he wants to do to find out, he's actually 
forcing new science and new technology to be developed so that he can get the the, the images and the, the the information for the wow. movie, um, which I thought was pretty cool um, for that to be happening. So uh, we'll have to keep an ear out for that one and, and see how James Cameron goes with the if new he stuff. uses all these slipstreams. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, or these little robots to start filming down under the water. Yeah, um, well, I mean, a lot of a lot of that stuff is filmed by robots anyway mm, because yeah. you can't put people down there. They crush <laughs> so easily. Yeah. <laughs> we're designed between to be able to cut between like uh, uh, maybe four fifths of an atmosphere. <laughs> Beyond that, we're not so good. Uh, Useless designs. Whenever yeah. someone asks me if there's one thing I'd change about myself, I always say it's the power of flight. The power of flight. That would be well, you'd remove it. Yeah. <laughs> or add to it in some way. Yeah. 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 Well, there are. I mean, there are some pretty awesome things. That humans could do, but there's a lot that we could change. I mean, you know, to err is human, isn't it? Really, <laughs> to make mistakes and, um, and and but it's to strive to correct those. Errors. That's right. That's yeah. right. We want to be out there, um, and there is a lot of maths in in, in correcting where things go wrong. And I think you've got a little bit of of the the numbers and the theory behind that, Dennis, don't you? I do. Yeah. Yeah. This one's a bit more um, math intensive, less storyified than before, but it, it's. Topical. We use radios like right now. People probably still use compact discs. I hope. If yeah, well, not, I'm playing the music off on yeah. the CD today. Actually, do you know what? In my car, I have a tape player. Yeah, me too, baby. It's amazing. Yeah. <laughs> does it still work? My one, last one died. It does. It does. I was listening to um uh, the Goon Show the other day. Some old <gasps> Goon Show tapes. Yeah. So it's yeah, amazing. it's great. I love it. <laughs> I got a weird thing. Once my car was parked outside my house back in one of the old houses I lived in, I went out there one morning and someone put a cassette tape under my um, windscreen wiper. Or <laughs> the best hits of something. I was worried it was like a message from the future and I had to listen. It wasn't. It was just some bad 90s music. But um, <laughs> it could have been. Mm. Well, maybe not. What's time travel doing these days? Anyway, error correction. Sorry. Error. <laughs> right. okay, you start with, with your music. People love that stuff. Listen to it. Yeah, music. And then um, we digitize it. We turn it all into zeros and ones because they're pretty easy to work with. Yeah. Now, that's good. Makes data digital, easy to transfer, convert into different things. But it's not that safe. If it gets scratched, if you look at a word, you can easily see like, oh, they were trying to spell wind or wind or... No, that's a horrible example. (laughs) Well, if someone's writing supercalifragilisticexpialidocious and you lose a couple of letters, you can guess like, see what you were doing there. We want to do that same kind of thing with CDs so that if they get scratched, we can fix this. There's been a lot of people working on this. I think the most common ones the Reed Solomon's um, work. The, that's Irving S. Reed and Gustav Solomon, two ex-MIT people, I think. Check that. Let me know. If I'm still here, I'm not going to be here long. Don't let me know. It's fine. I'll check that. Uh, <clears throat> okay. So what they do is they add a little parody bit for, like, they're broken into the zeros and ones, so they're your little bits. For every three bits of data, you add like a parity bit that helps you differentiate it. So if you lose that bit, you've still got something to be able to help you identify it. And rather than work with just chunks of three, they drag it up into full bytes. I think they use like words that are about 255 letters long. Mm. However, in that. Why 255? <laughs> <laughs> the same reason you could only get 254 rupees in the. Um, one of the original Zelda games, because zero was also counted, so you can only remember up to... It's... What is it? No. It's 256, isn't it? So you could get 255. Yeah. Because bits are counted in powers of two. That's right. Yeah. 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 Two to the power of... Two, four, eight. (laughs) He's counting on his fingers, but he's he's doing it faster than most people would. (laughs) To the power of eight. Yes! Win! (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, oh, which is 2 to the power of 2 cubed, which is, because 2 is amazing. It's no 0, that's fantastic, but (laughs) it's more useful in this, well, using zeros as well. No, it doesn't matter. Anyway, 2 to the power of 8, 256, 255, very useful number. But um, with that bit, each one of those words is about 0.00013 seconds of music. And even though your word's now this huge 255 letters... You can only correct up to 16 of those bits. That's just using your standard, um, was it, Reed Solomon code fixing thing. So they also do what is called the um, cross-interleave Reed Solomon code, which is where you actually mix up the words. So if it gets scratched, it's not 
taking all those letters from a single word. It's spreading them out. Mm. Yeah, for example, you got um, cat, dog, and car, and you want to like interleave them. You turn that into three new three-letter words. You take the letters from cat, you make those the first ones. So all the new words begin with C, then A, then T. Then you put dog in as all the second letters. So now they're C, D, A, O, and T, G. And then car becomes the last letters. So you've got C, D, C, A, O, A, and T, G, R. So that way if you lose like your entire first word, you've only lost one letter from each of those. You know that they're three-letter words because that's how your system's set up. So you know it can't be at and you can shorten it down. So it must be like cat, hat, mat, bat, fat, something like that. Yeah, yeah. You can figure it out. But it's also got other telltale things because rather than just have the entire word like that that gets scratched, it's got its parody bits. So even though it's missing a letter, it can go through and try and correct these by using it's got a thing where it can actually correct up to a certain point and after that it can make very educated guesses to fix these. And this is good. It, it works with the first bit, the actual code layer. That can f- help it correct like physical problems with the CD or things that happened when it was recorded, if something didn't record right. But the second bit is useful because that'll help fix up all the things we do to our music or things. It'll (laughs) fix up fingerprints, fix up scratches. It can fix burst errors, which is like if someone puts a big scratch in there, it's all just one lump of error, up to 3,500 bits, which is the same as drilling what size hole in your CD, Jamos? I'd say probably about two and a half millimeters. (laughs) (laughs) Really, you're exactly correct, yeah. You can drill a two and a half mil hole in your CD, and no should way. keep playing flawlessly. I want, I want to go home and try this now and, <laughs> and see. With, with a, an old burnt CD or something like that, yeah. If you want, it can do its guessing <laughs> for um, holes of up to, well, sorry, burst bits of up to 12,000 bits, which is like drilling an 8.5 mil hole in your CD. Crazy! <laughs> yeah, it won't be flawless. You'll start to get like weird tickings and stuff if that happens, but um, it can still guess and it'll get it mostly right. Yeah, and this, it's not just CDs. We use this with the way we communicate things from space. It costs a lot to get something up there, so they don't want to lose data with um, cosmic rays, you know, space battles, all that stuff wrecking your signals down here. So they put in a lot of error correction. So what if we lose just through travel, space, battles, oh. sci-fi? Yeah. What else? RAM, USB sticks, yeah. hard drives? And with the, the error correction, does it vary from CD player to CD player? Like, I know... I've chucked CDs in, in some players and, and they don't work and, and it's not so good and then in others it'll work fine. Is that just because one's a crap cheap CD player <laughs> or is it actually because the the error correction stuff inside it? It can be. Most of the stuff doing the decoding is pretty much the same because yeah. all the CDs are recorded to be a, like a generalised format that will play in lots of these. You will get ones that can read better. Some yeah. of them will get a larger buffer zone so they can spend more time figuring it out. They have a little thing where like crap we give up we'll just play some silence for this bit because we want the song <laughs> to keep going yeah okay cool yeah it's helping the world <laughs> one disc at a time yeah that's right so whenever we slip up there's something there to help us cover the mistakes yeah, but, well, what it doesn't explain is how frequently when I go to a restaurant I get completely the wrong order Uh, not enough maths too many humans that's right I'd love to know speaking autocorrect the um the iPhone autocorrect in this with the smartphones, <laughs> if, if, is there maths behind that? Like, are they calculating how far our fingers slip and that sort of thing? The dictionary or, things. I yeah. did read something about this once. It looks at some of them actually learn and find out which words you're more likely to do. Other ones just do giant studies of they'll input no. Well, they won't have giant blocks of text in the phone, but when they're writing it, they'll go through famous novels and things like that and look at which words are more likely to occur than others. It's something wow. they use when they're doing um, cryptography and breaking codes like that. Yeah. They often find out which letters, which words, all those kinds of things yeah. that are more likely to try and figure out, well, they use this symbol a lot, so that's probably in English or French. It's normally an E. Okay. Further, yeah. 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 Well, and that comes down to something, a little bit of maths called Zips Law. Oh. Zips. Uh, Zips. How do you Z-I-P-F. spell Z-I-P-F. Yeah. Uh, oh, Zips Law. Yeah. Isn't, isn't that Zip Dingbats? That's a... F- oh, that's that. <laughs> that's all right. Ignore me. Uh, so Zips Law is basically uh, in a block of... Um, in a block of text. And you know, something that somebody has written, then the word that appears the most appears uh, it's significantly more. It, it's the, the number of 
the number of occurrences is 1 over 2n of the number of words, I think it is. Yeah, there's going to be something else in there. Um, can't remember off the top of my head. But the word that uh, um, occurs the most occurs far more than the word that occurs yeah. second, which occurs far more than the word that, uh, the third and fourth and fifth okay. and fifth. It's like Benford's Law, but for words. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I'm just going to assume that uh, people in Radio Land <laughs> ben- yeah. know of Benford's Law, or at least go and search it. <laughs> Sounds good to me. Yeah, yeah, make people do some research. <laughs> You're listening to Fuzzy Logic on 2XX 98.3 FM. And uh, today we are talking maths. Broderick here with Jamos and Dennis in the studio. And uh, look, I think it's time to go back to Jamos and uh, get a bit of eBay action. Yeah, well, you know those auctions on the internet where you have to provide the lowest unique bid in order to win them? Do I? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) You know what? There's maths in that. No way. Oh, yeah. There's maths, baby. Okay, so these are the ones where you you can bid any amount. Like you could bid a thousand dollars for a hundred dollar item. Yeah. Um, but the the lowest unique number. Absolutely there. right. So in a lowest unique bid auction, participants place bids for a relatively valuable item, such as a car or a boat, in an attempt to have the lowest unmatched bid for at the time the auction ends. The lowest bid uh, it could be one cent. And if the if the pay if the participant pays a fee, often a dollar for each bid, so it actually costs you money to place a bid. And um, after placing a bid, the participant is told if his or her current bid is winning the auction. If not, many bid again, uh, hundreds of times. Right. And there's the real catch: it's hundreds of times. And on average, the auctioneer earns double the cost of the item being auctioned, while participants can pay hundreds of dollars to lose. That's amazingly... Yeah. 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 In a study of these lowest unique bid auctions, Northwestern University researchers asked a different question. Who wins these auctions? And is it the strategic gambler or the lucky person? And the answer is... The lucky person? Ding, ding. <laughs> yeah, you go. You're lucky, you win. Yeah. What, the gamblers aren't winning? <laughs> who would have thought? But ironically, it's the lucky person who uses a winning strategy that wins. Uh-huh. So you've got to be lucky, but you've got to know what you're doing at the uh, same time. Math's lucky. Math's lucky, <laughs> that's right. Uh, they studied the public data on 600 or online auctions in Australia and Europe, uh, played by over 10,000 different auction people, uh, and there was a total of 200,000 individual bids. Wow. The data uh, allowed the researchers to analyse in a systematic way what's going on in each auction. And that allows you to start thinking with game theory, if you're you're so inclined. An online auction is a classic game. You've got some information, and you're trying to guess what other people are doing. And based on that guess, you try and define your best strategy. So you go, all right, so what are you thinking? You're thinking this, so that means I'll do that. Then the other person is going, right, what are they thinking? They're thinking this, so I'll do that. And then you get into a great big loop. And you've got to throw some numbers into it to help you break that loop. The uh, researchers conducted a computer simulation and identified what the optimal strategy is in lowest unique bid auctions. And they found that the strategy is a bursty one. Bursty (laughs) one. That's that's what they called it. I love it. And it's consecutive bid values initially that are close to each other and then a great big jump to another area and then you go consecutive again. Uh, so, for example, if you went, all right, I'm going to bid at 10 cents, oh, fail, 11 cents, oh, fail, uh, 12 cents, fail, 13, fail, 14, uh, 15, uh, 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 23, uh, all right, enough of this, uh, I'm going to try $2.73, fail, $2.74, fail, boom, 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 and you just take great big jumps and go bang, 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 all the way up, right. but you, you hit every cent on the way up, and then take a great big jump, and then hit every cent on the way up, and you just keep going till you've got your unique bid. Uh, So this mixed strategy uh, combines 
exploitation, the taking the small steps in one area, and exploration, which is taking those great big steps. It's a smart strategy that gives you a better chance of winning, but the researchers discovered that all the other participants have figured it out too, wiping out any advantage to individuals. Because if everybody's doing it, then it's, it's not any different. It's just that if you're not doing it, you're being sort of penalized, because that's what everyone else is doing. Uh, and it's actually a very similar strategy to what animals foraging for scarce food do. So uh, an albatross, for example, has, it's got a huge amount of ocean to go and explore. There's lots of lovely fish in, in an area. So what they'll do is they'll actually hunt on a very small patch for a little while, uh, trying to find the fish. And if there's no fish, um, then they up stumps, as it were, and they hightail it over to a completely different spot a long, long way away, rather than go spiraling out and out and out and out from one spot. They'll fly off to a whole new area and then forage there. Hmm. Uh, actually, it's also um, a lot of... Uh, it's also a way that people um, try to identify genes. It's the same thing. You've got a great big stretch of DNA, and you chop it at one spot, and then chop it, chop it, chop it, chop it, chop it. No, jump to another spot and chop, 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 trying to find where the gene starts. It's, it's actually a really, really clever way of doing things. In lowest unique bid auctions, people like to win and become overly optimistic about the amount of money they will lose. <laughs> they rationally enter an auction to try and win a valuable item for a low price, but then they go, to, they go irrational and stay in the auction, which is just a game of chance and bid way too much. So, what's the good news out of this? Uh, at some point, people will stop playing these online auctions. So, Amaral, who's the head researcher, humans are smart about recognizing when the deck is stacked against them. So, the best thing about that is shortly, or maybe, uh, shortly, we won't get these emails, the spam saying, do you want to win this for a dollar? Then go to this website. And, yeah. yeah. I, I beg to differ. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I mean, look, not to dispel people's faith in the human race, but when it comes to numbers, we really are stupid sometimes. You know, people enter the lotto every week and like, okay, you have to be in it to win it and it can be a bit of fun. Yeah. You can pay for your bit of fun to have the chance to win lots of money. But there are people that genuinely enter it thinking they're going to win. And the odds of winning, I mean, there's so many things that are more likely to happen than winning if the you, lotto. Well, the, the way I like to think about it is if you could reliably win money from it, mm. then there would be companies set up that do exactly that. <laughs> and yeah. there is one company set up to do exactly that, and that's the lotto. <laughs> <laughs> that's the people yeah. who are running the, the lottery. It's yeah. the same with casinos and gambling. If you could reliably win money from it, Maybe companies set up doing well that there are, and they get kicked out of casinos and um, roughed up. Quite Which we badly. actually we've got a lot to thank uh, the casinos for that for internet security. Yes, um, yeah. most of the most of the internet security that we see now is actually uh, born of uh, the casinos in America trying to identify people who um, are very good at uh, using maths to help them win the money. One of the differences between the lowest bid auction and the lotto is that if you don't win that, you just don't win at all. Whereas with the lotto, you can keep almost winning. You can get like a few of the numbers and get a little cash prize, True. which is very rewarding for people. We like almost winning because then we think, <laughs> yeah, next time for sure. <laughs> then the rolls and the yeah. house, but it's, yeah. Mm -hmm. I suppose because, yeah, the odds do just increase so much as you go up from getting three numbers right to four to five to... I, I don't know how many you have to get, whether it's no. five or six, but yeah, it's... I don't, I don't you like get subs as well, or Powerballs or something? Yeah, um, yeah, that's right, changes the whole thing. Haven't studied Lotto in a while. <laughs> <laughs> Ever since you won. <laughs> you knew you had to get out early. Yeah. Uh, I, I thought the best object was just to buy one winning ticket and then go with that. But, yeah, I don't yeah. know why all these people buy all these losing tickets. Yeah, <laughs> go in a news agent, just ask for the winning, winning ticket. <laughs> And you can even split it, you know, give them maybe five times what the ticket's worth. 
yeah. I'll try that next time. And I can just imagine them going into the, you know, news agent and just go, oh, yeah, I'll give you that winning ticket. Yeah. And then what if you did win? <laughs> <laughs> well, it's all the worse for them. Yeah, that's right. But, yeah, you know, just a bit of, um, was it sarcasm there from the, the news agent? Yeah. Yeah, it's, uh, yeah well... Talking about the online things like the auctions and that, there's also a whole lot of online shopping out there and people are going through and doing lots of reviews. People Mm. like Amazon because that's great. You've got lots of customers putting their reviews up there. Mm. There's reviews on YouTube. There's Metacritic if you play video games. If it's online, there's someone making comments about it and rating it with thumbs or likes or whatever like that. But a problem with this is that there's so much information, it's hard for people to sort it, to figure out what's real what's fake and what's being sarcastic. So there is someone, I can't remember the name, sorry, it's a while since I read this article, that's actually using maths to try and spot sarcasm in these reviews so they can figure out easily um, what's genuine and what's just sarcastic. So you can cut it out and leave more legitimate scores or reviews for products to make people's lives easier. Now, it's just early days. I think at the moment it's about as good as a really stupid person at figuring out if someone's being sarcastic is that, but... That's okay. People can get by in that kind of social thing like, ah, they don't like me. That makes sense now. (laughs) But they're developing it further. So soon we'll have robots going out there figuring out what sarcasm is. And now this is, I find, that's handy. Can they they then teach the Americans? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I think it was actually an American coder. I imagine if an English one was doing this, it would have been solved years ago. I like it because not only we'll be able to go that and fix up all these online reviews... Then maybe we can teach AI to be sarcastic back. That's what I want. Back chatting computers. None of this how going to compute you thing. I want like um, what was the giant robot who was sarcastic? My oh, Marvin. Marvin. Yeah. Marvin from the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Yeah. yeah. One of my favourite robots size of the, the planet, and I have to go and collect people. Yeah. yeah. See, that, uh, <laughs> That'd be my true use of sarcasm. Bring it back to people. It's, it, it, it's a wonderful thing to get to use, as long as you're the one using it. If anyone else does it, it's kind of lame. Yeah. And then in robots, and oh, the feedback pretty soon, your phone will be sarcastic. You've just mm. broken up with someone. So, oh, you're calling them, are you? Good idea. Thanks, the- phone. You're right. <laughs> it could change our lives. And we'd all be kind of bitter people afterwards. Maybe. That's right. That's right. Bitter sarcastic. <laughs> yeah, that'd be a really good idea, Dennis. Mm. You want to buy that, do you? Yeah, yeah. You need those shoes. <laughs> oh, dear. All right. Well, it's almost time for us to come to an end on that sarcastic note. But um, look, to, to leave a bit more positive, I really want to share um, this bit of mathematics that I found on a webcomic. I'm not going to take any credit for it. It's on a webcomic called Spiked Math. Mm-hmm. which is amazing. Um, <laughs> and, I mean, this just absolutely blew my mind. So I thought we'd finish off by sharing this today. Um, and it's all about, you know, it's a small world, really. Um, now, if you're watching a high-definition television, uh, generally at uh, 1080p, uh, what that means is that you're watching uh, an image at a resolution of 1920 by 1080 pixels, um, which gives you a, a, a total resolution of uh, about 2.1 million pixels on a screen, or 2.1 megapixels. Um, other televisions have less pixels, um, but we're going to stick fewer. with 2.1. Fewer. <laughs> fewer. Fewer, sorry. Not less, fewer. Fewer. Yeah. Fewer pixels. As accountable, not a measurable. Right, sorry. Have fewer pixels. Um, uh, but we're going to stick with 2.1 megapixels here. And studies indicate that the human eye can distinguish... About 10 million colours. Pretty good eye. 10 million colours. Pretty amazing. But So we're going to suppose that each pixel uh, in the 2.1 megapixels can have any one of these 10 million colours. Uh, you know, even 256 colours would suffice here. But we're going to go for the big number, 10 million. So that means there are 10 million uh, to the power of 2.1 million possible still images. Uh, so a single static image that that TV could display. Um now, assuming uh, we're going to go with the American standard here, because it's an American comic, uh, the American standard of 30 frames per second, that means there are a total of 10 million to the power of 2.1 million to the power of 30s, where s is the number of seconds. So there's that po- many possible image sequences for a running time of s seconds. So basically, there's that many number of videos for a certain running time that we could calculate. 
Um, now, you can do the same thing for audio, too. And uh, for time's sake, I'm not going to go into too much detail here, but for audio, you get a number of 2 to the power of 0.71 million to the power of S for audio that has a running time of S seconds. So, again, we can get a number for certain amounts of seconds for audio here to calculate that. And to turn it into video, you obviously combine image and audio to make video. And um, so for image and audio sequences, we get t uh, the, the number we have for video there, 10 million to the power of 2.1 million to the power of 30S times the audio there, 2 to the power of 0.71 million to the power of S. So that's the possible videos that have a running time of S seconds. Now... Suppose that we could be watching uh, plays for at most a thousand years. Yeah, okay, this is just getting extreme here. The oldest person, Methuselah, according to the Bible, lived to 969 years. So let's just round it up to a neat a thousand. So a thousand years contains about 32 billion seconds. So counting the number of videos that range from zero to 32 billion seconds gives us... Uh, that 10 million to the power of 2.1 million to the power of 30s times 2 to the power of 0.71 million to the power of s, all times each other, the sum of, for each value of s, each whole number value of s, from 0 to 32 billion. That gives us the total number of possible videos that have a running time of, at most, 1,000 years. Therefore, the conclusion from this is the number of videos that you could be watching on your TV is finite. Given enough time and resources, you could theoretically create every possible video. It's a finite number. And put it into a giant video box. In this box of videos is the movie The Lion King, along with every other movie ever created. In fact, the box even contains every movie that's yet to be filmed. It contains video diaries of every living person, every deceased person, and even every person yet to be born. In one video is a recording of your life as seen through your eyes and heard through your ears. In fact, the box contains videos of all the possible ways you could live your life. But there are only a finite number of videos in the box. Hence, there are only a finite number of ways you can lead your life. Yeah, good oh. or bad? I don't know. <laughs> How many of them are cat videos? <laughs> every possible cat video from every possible angle. Mm, just wow. Yeah, that's that's great. Uh, I, I must confess, I, I, I tuned out a little there. <laughs> <laughs> I think the conclusion we can make from that is that maths can lead us to some amazing things. And uh, I think that's a good spot to finish for today. Yay. So thanks very much for joining me, Jamos. It's been, oh, it's been an absolute pleasure. Uh, and thanks for joining me, Dennis. I loved it, yeah. Fantastic. If you enjoyed today's episode, head online, just type Fuzzy Logic into iTunes for the podcast or Fuzzy Logic on 2xx.podbean.com and you can listen to all this ma these amazing mathematical moments once again. But for now, I'm going to sign off and uh, I'll be joining you again next week on April 1st when we have uh, uh, some more fun with Fuzzy Logic. <laughs>